The scripture reading for this evening comes from 2 Kings 5, 1 through 19. This is God's word. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a, he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him ten talents of silver, sixteen thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? that this man sends me word to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me, and stand, and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before them, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any god but the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're in the middle of, for the next, let's see, last week was our first week, and for the, today and the next two weeks, we're going to take time as a church 
to renew our vision and our values. And uh, we're going to do that by looking at four words that here at Red Mountain, we, uh, we understand it to give expression to key biblical themes uh, that matter a lot to us as a church. And I hope they actually are themes that any church of Jesus Christ would deeply care about and want to uh, be woven into the fabric of our life together. And those four words are worship, grace, community, and place. And you'll notice that tonight we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 5 to learn about grace. And I suppose I want to mention why this passage. One of the main reasons is if you notice what I always try to do, this is the second time we've worked through these four words, I try to pick passages that, at least two passages from the Old Testament to talk about these words, and then two from the New. And the main reason is I want you to see that these four words are all throughout the Bible, that virtually on every page of the Scriptures, you will see these themes emerge, and they always point us to Jesus. And so, why this passage? Well, especially you might be thinking why this passage when it comes to the topic of grace. Isn't the New Testament where we learn all about the grace of God in Jesus? And I would say, yes, that's definitely true, but by no means the only place. In fact, many commentators reflecting on this passage look at 2 Kings chapter 5 and this story about Naaman, this Assyrian military leader as perhaps one of the richest and most complex places to go in the Bible to talk about what grace does to a person, how it changes a person. So, what I want to do with you tonight is to to look at this passage, this story about Naaman, and to see what it has to teach us about God's grace and the new life that it brings, ultimately in Jesus Christ. We're going to learn three things I want us to see. The first here is that we want to look at who is it for? Who is grace? Who who does it reach to? We'll look for who it's for, that is the reach of God's grace, We're going to look at why do we need it, and we'll look at the offense of God's grace. And then lastly, we're going to look at how it works, the power of it, the power of God's grace. So first, let's look together here at who it's for and and the reach of this grace. For many people, I think increasingly so, especially in the United States and in Western modern um, societies, for many people, Christianity is believed to be a narrow and exclusive in its beliefs, actually making the world a more dangerous place, not a better place. And according to this view, the way forward is really that we need to persuade people to drop their traditional religious views about God. And But the question I want us to, to wrestle with a little bit tonight is, does that really get us anywhere better or any anywhere newer that actually resolves this problem of religious belief? And does it necessarily always lead to bad outcomes? Listen to how one writer diagnoses this this situation. Skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. 
It assumes God is unknowable, or that God is loving but not wrathful, or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. In addition, their proponents believe they have a superior way to view things. They believe the world would be a better place if everyone dropped the traditional religion's views of God and truth and adopted theirs. Therefore, their view is, as, is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spiritual reality. If all such views are to be discouraged, then this one should be as well. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. Now, I do want to say, as a, I guess, a caveat to that, there, there's just simply no denying in our current day and time that religion and even some of the, its Christian forms can and does lead to a sense of pride and superiority over other peoples that, when it goes unchecked, does lead to injustice and oppression and exclusion. But I want you to see from this story of Naaman and, and the reach of God's grace, how the scriptures, the Christian message of the gospel, deconstructs this problem. Notice, first of all, here in verses 1 and 2 about Naaman. Who is this person? You know, the main characters in this story really, really are Naaman and Elisha. And then, right after those two, we'll see at, towards the end this evening, the, the, the slave girl in Naaman's house. Then you also have the king of Israel and, and the folks that come along with Naaman. But Naaman is the main character here, and he is a Gentile. He's not an Israelite. He's coming from Syria. And in fact, he is a well-known man of valor. He is a military uh, might. He's successful in his efforts to uh, wage war on behalf of the king of Syria, and he has won great status and great acclaim in his own hometown. But the passage also tells us that he was a leper. Now, leprosy during the the biblical times here is not what often is referred to today as Hansen's disease. When you read about leprosy in the Bible, usually what that's referring to is more akin to psoriasis, we might call it today. But it's... at that day and time, it was a skin disease you could not cure. It was permanent. So here we have this, this man, Naaman, who is a Gentile. He's a non-Israelite. He is an enemy of God's people, and he is a leper. Those are all ways in which the story tries to indicate to us meaning of that this guy is outside He is excluded. He's not a part of God's people. And yet, as we'll see as we move through the story, the story ends with Naaman healed of his leprosy. And he's confessing his faith and loyalty to God. What does that tell you? Just in broad strokes here, what that tells you is this, that Naaman's story shows us that God's grace is for everyone. 
regardless of who they are or what they've done. And as we, you'll see here, even in this passage, in verse 2, where it says the Syrians had been raiding the Israelites. This is a guy who is probably actively currently hated by many of God's people for the terror he has wrought upon them. And in fact, what this story does teach us is it helps us to see what grace really is. It is unmerited favor. This story of Naaman shows us that grace cannot be earned and it cannot be lost based on your successes or failures or else Naaman would be out, permanently excluded from this free gift that we read about throughout the scriptures. And therefore, this story of Naaman is actually, it retells the whole story of the Bible and the reach of God's grace to the least and the lowest and the most unlikely. So for example, if we were to go back into Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which is Abraham's call, when God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. What God says to him is, I'm not just going to make you into a great nation, it's through you and your offspring, I'm going to bless the nations. The grace that I'm showing you is not just for you. But it's through you, my specific call to this specific people, that I'm going to bless the nations. And fast forward then into Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's ascended into heaven and he has poured out his Holy Spirit on the apostles and Peter is preaching in Jerusalem and the people there are convicted of their sin and they turn to him and say, what should we do? He says to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus. And the reason he says is because the promise is for for you and for your children. And then he says this, this promise is for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The reach of God's grace goes to the least and the lowest, the most unlikely, even your most hated enemy. That's what this story presents us with. And it, not only, though, is this grace far-reaching, as we're going to see with Naaman, it's also offensive to everyone, which is precisely why we need it, which I know sounds like a bit of a, a contradiction. But the offense of grace, this open-handed gift of God, on his terms and his terms alone, is offensive for any number of reasons, and we'll see a couple here with Naaman. But this offensive grace, it exposes our deep-seated self-salvation strategies that only God's grace can replace. So let's look here. Secondly, not only did we see the reach of God's grace in what happens in Naaman's life here, but also the offense of it. Notice here for a moment Naaman's expectations he arrives uh, in uh, Samaria with his chariots and uh, his entourage. And the passage tells us he comes with all kinds of gifts, uh, hundreds of pounds of silver, several hundreds of pounds of gold, uh, ten changes of clothes of the finest uh, fabric that's fit only for a king. 
He comes bearing all of these gifts. He comes with a letter of recommendation from the king of Syria addressing the king of Israel. In other words, this is all meant to say that that, that name and traffic's in the highest of places. He is a man of significance, of stature, of importance, and should be both sent under that umbrella and treated in that way, making him worthy to go to this other place where perhaps this word that he's heard from a slave girl in his own house, maybe somebody might be able to heal him. But he has these expectations that come out most significantly when he comes and meets Elisha. Notice what happens here after he comes to see Elisha. And, he's, and Elisha says, go wash in the river. He doesn't even come out to meet Naaman. He just sends his messenger. Naaman's reaction is one of anger and frustration. He says, I thought that Elisha would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and, and wave his hand and he would cure me. You see, Elisha, or, or sorry, Naaman, he had expectations about how God would relate to him. He had expectations based on who he was, where he was from, his wealth, his status, only to find out that's not at all how this works. And in fact, his expectations that we see here, they do reveal a common but fundamentally mistaken understanding of grace. If we could put it in a phrase, Naaman's expectation here of how grace works is we could call it vending machine grace. Vending machine grace. Naaman shows up And the basic way he thinks that this is going to work is if I I put in my best and then God is going to give me his best. A lot of people think that's how Christianity works. That as long as you give God your best, you know, it's the classic phrase, God only helps those who help themselves. As long as you put in your best and that's somewhat better than your worst, God will be gracious to you. He will rescue you. He will do for you and give you what you most need. But see, Elisha, he will have none of this idea. That whole way of thinking about God could not be further from what the Bible teaches. And Elisha exposes Naaman and this whole understanding of how God should relate to him. He refused to engage. Notice Elisha refused to engage Naaman according to any of these expectations and it exposes, his, it exposes him. And it exposes his pride that he has a much deeper problem than just leprosy or a skin disease. Elisha doesn't even send out doesn't even come out to him. He just sends a messenger with directions to go wash seven times in the Jordan River. And so, you know, Naaman, he storms off in rage. Why do I have to go and wash in that river? If all you're going to do is just tell me how to go be clean, which what he has in mind here is religiously clean, ceremonially clean. Why can't I just go wash in the rivers back home? Why are you going to make me go wash in the Jordan River, which was known for being much less 
clean and uh, fresh as the rivers from where Naaman is from. You see, here's the issue. Elijah doesn't really care who Naaman is. He doesn't care where he's from, how much money he has, how powerful he is, how much status he has. He's simply not going to play according to Naaman's rules. And in fact, if we're going to understand grace, the free gift of grace, we really need to understand and see that here. It's precisely because God does not treat you either according to what you do deserve or according to what you don't deserve that grace is good news. Let me try to show you what what I mean here. You see, Naaman, he's stuck. He's come with his best, but he has a huge problem. And the prophet who can do something about it is not going to treat him the way he thinks he should be treated. His best isn't good enough. And he's, he's stuck. He's faced with he doesn't have what is necessary to make this whole thing work. And we're stuck too. Because what Elisha helps us to see here and the way that he treats Naaman is this. The very best about you can't clean up the worst about you. The very best about you cannot clean up the worst about you. And why is that? Because when you relate to God based on your best, it becomes your worst. When you try to relate to God based on your best, based on your resume and your performance, it by definition becomes your worst. And the reason for that is because That's what pride is. Believing that somehow you are worthy in and of yourself. And really the problem isn't with you, it's that God hasn't quite seen how worthy you are yet. Do you see how much of an assault that is on your pride, on Naaman's pride? See, if you are at all offended by this grace or you feel stuck by it, or it's confronting you and challenging you to have to rethink everything you think about yourself, all of your striving and trying. If you find yourself stuck like that, you need to stop and listen again to what God promises here in his word. That's exactly what happens to to Naaman. Look in verses 13 and 14. After he had walked off in rage, His servants come to him and they say, My father, it it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? Now, there's a little play on words here. Look back earlier in, in verse 10 when Elisha Uh, the message that he sends to to Naaman, listen to what he says. He says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. See, Naaman never heard what Elisha said. His servants did though. And they come to him 
with a question. Essentially asking, did, did, did Elisha only say that you will be clean? The implication is, did you not hear what he said? If you will go wash in that river seven times, which picks up on language from the book of Leviticus about washings to be made clean, you will not just be clean, you will be healed. You will be restored And so, Naaman, with nowhere else to turn, all the other options are ruled out, and they won't work. He goes, and he dips himself seven times in the Jordan, according to what Elisha said, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So you remember all those things I said at the beginning about Naaman that described the reach of God's grace, that he was an enemy, that he was unclean. Now all of a sudden, you see what's happened. Grace has begun to remove those. Grace has entered into his life. And therefore, what I want you to see here lastly is the power of this grace. How does it work? Well, first of all, I want you to see that it creates a whole new life. It brings new life. The the fancy word for that is conversion. Naaman gets converted here. There's a radical reorientation of his heart. But notice what happens here. It says his flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child. This is more than just the skin disease is gone. This is like the skin of a baby. It's a way of this passage telling you, describing for you a new birth. We read about this in the New Testament all over the place. But here what happens is very much what Jesus says in the Gospels when he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see, Naaman, he's become like a child by the grace of God. He's been healed. He's been restored. He's been made right with God again. And while Naaman, as we see at the end of the passage, he's still a very important, prominent man with lots of power who sits at the right hand of the king of Syria. Now what we discover is that his power and his might and his wealth, those are just things that he has. They're no longer who he is. And grace always does that. When grace breaks into your life, it takes those very good things even in your life and displaces them. It replaces them. So they're no longer the things that define you anymore. They're just things that you have. So Naaman here, the first thing we see about the power of this grace is it creates a whole new life for him. But then secondly, notice the response to this grace in his life. He becomes a man who worships God alone and devotes his entire life to service to God. It says in verse 15, he returned to the man of God and he and all of his company and he stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now here Naaman, he's a very interesting story for us because He still is learning. Even as he has been restored and he's been healed and 
he confesses faith, he still wants to give Elisha a present. And Elisha refuses. He simply will not allow Naaman to believe that he can somehow buy God's grace. It's a free gift, and Elisha will not take it. So that Naaman would have to see, you can't buy it. Even after it's been given back to you. It's a free gift. But also notice here, Naaman realizes that he's going back to a place that does not believe in this God. And he's going to have to serve in a temple of another God. I think this is a fascinating part of this story where to, to be saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone doesn't remove you from where you find yourself today. It's very realistic. Here Naaman is asking for pardon for being in this temple of Ramon and yet notice Elisha says go in peace. Here we have Naaman realizing something about the claim of grace on your life. He had come to understand that if the gospel is of grace, there is nothing that God can't ask of him. If it is not a free grace, then he would always have something with which to bargain with God. See, if grace really is free, if it really is free, There is nothing God can't ask of you or me. So not only does this grace create a whole new life for him, it also changes the fundamental orientation of his life, what he worships and how he serves. Even in a place that is by no means friendly to the God that he now believes in. But then lastly, this grace, it comes through costly love and forgiveness. Let's look for a moment at the slave girl together. Verse 2 describes again how the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she knew about Naaman's leprosy and tells her mistress, I know somebody from where I'm from that if my master, if Naaman would go to see him, he would heal him. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Try to put yourself in the place of this little girl. This little girl now lives in the home of the mightiest, strongest warrior of Syria who's known for sacking and raiding her people where she's from. And here she is. She has lost her home She's lost her family. She's lost her freedom, all that was familiar to her. She's been carried off by other people that she, didn't, she does not know, to a land she doesn't know, to be a slave in another family's house, no less than Naaman, the one who oversee or oversaw the very occasion of the just breakdown of her life who oversaw and directed the destruction of everyone that she loved and all that she held dear, why on earth would this girl want to see this man healed? 
You see, what you see in this story is a picture of the gospel. That here, this slave girl is a picture of what Jesus came to do for us. Think about it like this. Jesus, he wasn't taken from his home against his will. He freely left perfect communion and fellowship with his heavenly father in heaven to come into this world as a man, to live the same realities that you and I live. And he didn't just, he didn't have his family taken away from him. He was actually forsaken and rejected by his friends and his family. He was rejected and forsaken by the religious leaders who should have known better and crucified by the political authorities as a threat. You see, he willingly came to give his life as a ransom for his enemies. This is what Paul tells us, Romans 5, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, what is it about the gospel of grace that should make us open to others, that should create in us the reach of God's grace that we see towards Naaman, like this little girl? See, the answer is this, that at the very heart of Christianity is a man who died for his enemies. And as he was dying, praying for their forgiveness. This means that we have within the gospel, within this good news, the strongest possible resources for practicing service and generosity and pursuing peace. And our job as Red Mountain Church, as we value as the scriptures do, this idea of grace, God's unmerited favor, our job is to reflect on this. And only as we do that will we be able to deal with people very different than us. Because what we'll begin to realize is, you know what? If it wasn't for the reach of God's grace towards me, I would never know it. And what I want for us, I want us to pray and remind each other of that grace. That the lengths to which Jesus has gone and continues to go to pursue you, to heal you, to renew you. Not just so that we could keep it to ourselves, but so that we might follow after Jesus and how he reaches to those least like him who even hated him with this free gift of God's grace and mercy and love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that this story would um, take root in our hearts and our minds, that what you say again and again in any number of different ways throughout your word, you say here in this one story, that your grace reaches where we aren't able to go that your grace humbles us and as a result, it's often very offensive to us. It calls us out. 
But we need you to do that and pray that you would do it in, in, in the way only a father could do. And we pray too that you would help us to see how it works, to experience the power of the saving grace that we find in Jesus. Father, would you please do that? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.